Oh Lord Jesus, you have brought us back from the margins of our sin and the separation that was ours because of our own depravity and by your self-sacrifice, by your perfect life, by your powerful resurrection, you have made us marginalized gloriously no more. Your grace is amazing because it makes blind people see. It makes the dead alive. It gives life where there was death. A miracle happens when you, by your Spirit, regenerate us and bring us back from the brink of our own sinfulness to be brought near into your presence. This is the gospel. This is the beautiful reality of what we sing about. That my sin is paid for. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Oh Lord, help us today as we rehearse this wonderful reality. To not hear it as an old familiar story. But rather as something that is so beautiful, so powerful, so meaningful. We would hear about it all day long, all the time, and every Sunday, because it is the essence of what it means for us to live and worship. So, Lord, please be our teacher today from this passage. Would you, Holy Spirit, use your word and make it leap in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The first four books of, uh, or chapters rather, of Matthew were to help us see Matthew's overall, overarching theme, which is that Jesus is the one, he's the Messiah. The message of the whole book of Matthew is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah sent to bring the kingdom of God to the world, to all the nations. That's why the book ends with the Great Commission, going to all the world and teach them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We move from the first four chapters to then to the next chapters, chapters 5 to 7, where we looked at Jesus' singular sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, where he explained to us through his teaching the ethics of grace, what real religion is, what real righteousness is, and the call, if you remember, in that section was to get real, to realize what God really wants us to do and how he really wants us to live. Today we begin um, the third chapter in our journey through this book, which is a series called Follow Him. It'll take us through chapters 8 through 10, as uh, Matthew takes now this general theme of who Jesus is, his teaching, and now we get to walk with him in the day-to-day activities of his life. So today we're going to start this series, then we're going to take a two-week break, so we're going to start and then break for two weeks as we turn the spotlight towards uh, global evangelism and our missions conference. Next week I'll be doing my annual um, missionary biography sermon on the life of uh, Hudson Taylor, and then the next week after that Nate Irwin will be preaching on um, John 4.34 on what it means for us to complete the work, and then we'll jump back into um, Matthew chapter 8, and that will carry us out just about to the end of the year. So our study in Matthew 8 through 10 is essentially about a new focus. And the new focus here is what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean that if you know that this Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, if he's been sent to bring God's kingdom to the world, then what does it look like to follow him? And what Matthew does in his whole gospel is to take selected stories And not present them as a biography of Jesus' life, but rather to take selected stories and to help you understand a message that he wants you to get about who Jesus is in light of these stories. In other words, if you compared Mark's account and Luke's account and John's account, you'd see that the stories even that we talk about today are in a very different order. And what Matthew does is he takes these 
miracles that we'll look at today. Three different miracles and different stories throughout the book of Matthew. He takes them and he puts them together because he wants you to see something about Jesus. So what we're going to look at now over the next number of weeks are not just a collection of stories, but rather it's a theology of who Jesus is captured in a narrative account of his life. Matthew is trying to communicate who Jesus is. Now the last section, Matthew 5 to 7, ended with an important phrase. Look at verse 27 of Matthew 7. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Then flip over to um, Matthew chapter 11 and verse 1. Here's the two bookends of this series. Because in Matthew 11:1 he says this, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. So what we have between uh, Matthew 8 and Matthew 10 is a particular section of Scripture where Matthew has a very specific message for us. And the question is, what is that particular message? Well, we get a hint of it beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8. It says, when he came down from the mountain, and what mountain was this? This was the mountain where Jesus gave his sermon, Sermon on the Mount. He came down from the mountain, and when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Question, why were crowds following him? Well, we just heard the answer in chapter 7 and verse 28. It says, and when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were shocked because when they were hearing the words of Jesus, it was as though they could tell that it was God who was speaking. There was a sense of power, a sense of authority. In fact, so much so, it says, that they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So these people were captivated by the words of Jesus. They understood that that what he was saying to them was, was something that was new, something that was powerful. And because of that, they began to follow him. They came down from the mountain, and now a vast number of people begin to follow him and watch him and hear him. And the scene shifts from the message of Jesus to the manner of Jesus. It it shifts from a declaration of his words to a demonstration of his authority. It shifts from just what he says to now what he does. And thus begins this journey, not just into the words of Jesus, but now we're going to figure out what does it mean to follow him? What does Jesus actually do and how can we be like him? So Matthew 8 through 10 can be divided up into two sections. Chapters 8 through 9 record 10 different miracles that Matthew gives us. A healing of a leper healing of a centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law, the fever was removed, Jesus calmed a storm, demons were cast out of a person, a paralytic person was healed, a girl who died was raised back from the dead, a woman with a discharge of blood was healed, blind men were able to see, and mute men were able to talk. And what you're going to see in chapters 8 through 9 is that Jesus not only has authoritative words, he has authoritative actions. You hang around him and you see amazing things happen, like people who are blind can suddenly see. People who could not talk, their tongues are loosed. People who are dead come to life. People who are filled with leprosy are suddenly healed. And a woman sick with fever, when Jesus just simply touches her, she wakes up and, without any recuperation, begins serving him as if she was never ill. And chapters 8 through 9 are designed to show us that Jesus is not only authoritative in his words, he's authoritative in his actions as well. And then chapter 10 Jesus gives some instructions to his disciples as to what it will cost them to follow him. 
So follow the line of the argument. It goes from, here's his message in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what I do in terms of my authority, and therefore, if you follow me, it will prove costly. In fact, in this text, we find a very renowned passage in verse 39 of Matthew 10 where it says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So, this section of Matthew, chapters 8 through 10, is all about following Jesus. Answering the questions of why should you follow him, and what kind of authority does he really have, and for that matter, what does following him really look like? So this morning, our objective is to look at three miracles. It's the miracles of the healing of a leper, healing of the centurion's servant, and also Peter's mother-in-law. Sometimes when you read the, the Gospels and you come to the healings of Jesus, you might just kind of read them as though they're, they're facts or information, but you need to know that the healings that Jesus does are far more than just a record of, of the healings that he did. There's something bigger that's going on. And, and that should, at least I hope, jog a question in your mind, and it would be this one. Why do you think Jesus healed people? What was the purpose behind his healing? Now, some of you would say, well, that was to prove that he was God. And, and that would be true, but that wouldn't be the full answer. Why did Jesus heal people? Why does not just go from city to city and declare a message and then walk away? Why not just give authoritative words so people know God is speaking? Why go into the cities and heal them? Such a central part of Jesus' ministry, you'd think that that would be a pretty important answer for us to know, wouldn't you? I want to give you just two things here as we get into these three miracles that are important for you to know about Jesus' healings in general and about his healings of these people in particular, these three that we're going to look at today. So here's the first thing. The healing grace of Jesus, first and foremost, is that healings in Jesus' life are platforms to tell us about Jesus. So the healings that he does are, are not just to heal people because they're sick. No, rather, healing in Jesus' life is a platform for us to know a lot about him. So not just his words, but also his actions and how he does his healings are really important. In fact, Matthew says this. Look at chapter 8 and verse 17. At the very end of this entire section of scripture, Matthew says this. And this was to fulfill. What does this refer to? It refers to all of the healings that have just happened. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So what's he doing there? After three miracles, he's saying all of this happened for a reason beyond just the healings. The point isn't just a leper who was healed, a centurion servant who was who was um, somehow able to recover from a distance as Jesus said the word, or Peter's mother-in-law. That's not the point. The point is, is that there's a bigger plan in place that relates to this passage of he took our diseases and healed our illnesses. And what Matthew's talking about is a really important passage all the way back in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Take your Bibles and let's go there. You need to see this, because this is probably one of the most significant passages about the Messiah in the Hebrew Old Testament. If you don't know a lot about the book of Isaiah, it was written to the people of God um, in anticipation of future judgment. God told them that there was going to come a day when he was going to discipline them for their spiritual adultery, for the way in which they had... Um, just gone after other gods. And eventually another nation would come, the nation of Babylon, and would take them away captive. And yet God, in the midst of his discipline, wanted his people to know he wasn't done with them, that there was going to come a day when he would bring them back from the brink. 
when even though their nation had been destroyed and the temple had been brought to ruins and the city gates had been completely destroyed and they were dispersed all over the known world, God is saying to his people, there will come a day, one day, when I will take my beloved nation and I will bring you back from the brink of your disaster and I will bring you back to my heart. There will be a day when I will be your God and you will be my people again. But it would come by a promised Messiah. Isaiah 53, at the end of the book of Isaiah, is recording that promise. Look at verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And here comes the verse, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And when Matthew does, and he can do this as an inspired New Testament writer, he looks back to the lens of Jesus' life and he sees in that passage in Isaiah 53 the fulfillment right here, right now, that Jesus in healing is bearing illnesses and bearing the sorrows, bearing the griefs and bearing the diseases of the people and thereby embracing the mantle of what it meant to be the Messiah. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. This is, this is a, a, a prophetic word to the people of Israel that one day your, your wanderings, your waywardness, your, your iniquities will one day be covered and clean and you will be brought back. And it says, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity iniquity of us all. The hope of this passage was that one day the nation of Israel would be restored, that God would take this Messiah and through him bring the nation back from the brink of their sinfulness, of their waywardness, and there would come a day, a day known as Shalom, when the peace of Israel would be restored, when God would dwell with his people, there would be no more wandering, no more waywardness, no more sinning, no more diseases, and this Messiah would take everything that was wrong and make it right, and they longed for him to come, they longed for him to be there. He He was their hope. He was their promise. He was their prince of peace. And Matthew says, Jesus is this one. And what we'll see through this book is that Matthew expands our horizon. That along with a national Israel, he has in view a spiritual peace that Jesus brings. The kind of peace that only the Son of God could accomplish. And so Matthew says that it's this Messiah who bears the griefs and the sorrows of the people. It's the Messiah who will liberate them from the ravaging consequences of their sin, including illness and disease. You realize that illness and disease have their root in sin. And the beauty of heaven, the beauty of our glorious eternal existence with the Father is there will be no more cancer, no more diseases, no more illnesses. We will be absolutely glorified in perfect bodies and perfect union and the light of our life will not be the Son. It will be the Son of God as we bask in the beauty of who He is. That our confession on that day will be that we were all brought back from the brink of disaster. That God brought us out of our individual Babylons. That yes, we all wandered. Like sheep, we went astray. But Jesus brought us back in order to be called our Messiah and our King. And Matthew shows us that Jesus' healings are linked to this prophecy. And 
that his aim is to carry the burdens of his people. So healings are not just healings for healing's sake. The healings tell us a ton about Jesus. And that's why Matthew says all of this happened in order to fulfill what was spoken of in the book of Isaiah. The second thing you need to note here is that Jesus' healings in Matthew 8 are focused first and foremost on the marginalized. Do you know what I mean by marginalized? I mean by people who had been considered outcasts. People who were not on the in crowd. People who were considered unclean or unworthy. Jesus heals, according to Matthew, a leper, a centurion, and a woman. All of them were marginalized. A leper was unclean, a centurion was an enemy, and a woman was a second-class citizen. And what you need to understand is that Jesus' culture, the culture in which, which he lived, was filled with social and ethical and ceremonial boundaries. Depending on who you, who you were, what family you were born into, what ethnic group you were in, um, and, and even what disease you had, determined your ability to be a part of the community of God. Probably no greater example of this than the temple itself. The Holy of Holies. Only one person could go in the Holy of Holies, and that was the high priest. And then there was the holy place, and only priests could go in there. And then outside of the Holy of Holies and the holy place was a courtyard where only Jewish men could gather for worship. And then outside of that courtyard was a courtyard for women. And outside of that courtyard was a courtyard for Gentiles. So in... In Jesus' day, the worship of God was predicated on boundaries. And if you were a Gentile, you couldn't get inside another court. And so therefore, you were always distant from the temple. If you were a woman, you were always second in line from the centrality of the worship. And if you were a leper, if you were a leper, you couldn't even come in the gates of the city, let alone come near the temple. So in Jesus' day, proximity to God was predicated on your social, ethnic, and ceremonial status. And what Jesus does is his first healings, according to Matthew, are specifically demonstrated on people who are marginalized. And there is a very particular message that I think Matthew wants us to hear. He's showing us that Jesus comes to minister to people who are at the margins of life. He's come to bring spiritual and physical healing. And what Jesus does is he heals people, he heals marginalized people, to demonstrate that he is bringing in a foretaste of the kingdom of God to earth. That there will come a day when there will be no more marginalized people ever, ever, The book of Revelation says that we'll stand before him and every tribe, nation, and tongue will declare worthy is the lamb that was slain. There'll be no white, no black, no Latino, no Hispanic, no Asian, no race, no... We won't speak English in heaven. We won't speak Spanish in heaven. We'll speak something else in heaven. And you'll speak tongues in heaven. How about that? So you'll be there and you'll be worshiping and it's all one people before the throne of God. And the singular confession of all of those people there is we were all brought back from the brink and our one confession is we know that Lamb of God is our Savior, the Savior of the world. 
And Jesus aims to bring a taste of that to earth. Sidebar, that's what Sunday mornings is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be a little sliver of what heaven is going to be. That we enter into this door first and foremost as followers of Jesus and those who love him. And our aim ought always, College Park, to make our place a little foretaste of heaven. Because when Jesus comes, he ministers to the marginalized in order to demonstrate that people who follow him live like him and they really care about bringing people back from the brink. Now, in Matthew 8, there's three different people that I want to focus in on and we have a message from each of them. And each of them shows us what Jesus is like and in so doing shows us what the gospel is like. So what you're going to see here is a beautiful picture of the gospel. So first, we have a leper who shows us that Jesus made it personal. The beautiful reality is that Jesus healing a leper shows us the personal nature of Jesus' involvement in the gospel. Look at verse 2. It says, and, what's the next word? Behold. Verse 2 says, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now the reason that Matthew says, and behold, is because this was a shocking moment that a leper came and knelt at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because leprosy in the Bible refers to any number of skin abnormalities, including leprosy as we would know it today. Anything associated with the skin was a scary disease because leprosy was the most feared disease that you could contract. And the reason was is that it... It had two effects on you. First, it meant that your your physical body would be disfigured and marred, and many people died from the infections caused by leprosy. So it was greatly feared, because you could die from leprosy. But there was another reason. It meant that if you received the news, or if you were declared to be leprous, you not only had a bad physical condition, you had a disastrous social condition. You're not hanging out at home anymore if you've got leprosy. You can say goodbye to your wife and children. Now you get to live outside the city gate. You get to live on the outskirts of culture. You're no longer able to have a normal life. You're banished to the solitary confinement of your leprosy. Uh, For example, when a, a leper was walking and would come near anyone, they were required by law to cover their face and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! Can you imagine? Every day, every moment, as a leper, you had to be cognizant of the fact as people would come near you, you had to cover your face and declare, unclean, unclean. What do you think that did to a man's soul? Every day, unclean, unclean. It also meant that you couldn't dress in a way that was attractive to give the appearance that you were healed. You were required by law to wear disheveled clothing and disheveled hair. You had to look a mess because you wouldn't want people mistakenly thinking that you were somehow clean when you weren't. So you had to verbally declare your uncleanness and you had to physiologically look like you were unclean. 
It meant that if a rabbi came near you, you always had to stay six feet away. You don't go near a rabbi. Stay at least six feet away. It meant that you'd have to live outside of the city walls and you were never allowed into the sacred areas. You were unclean. It meant that your life was a walking dead man. You could walk, you could talk, but you were an outcast. So it's no wonder that Matthew says in verse 2, Behold, because this leper comes near to Jesus and kneels at his feet. He was breaking every ceremonial and social and medical rule in the book. Most lepers that Jesus comes in contact with, like in Luke chapter 17 and verse 12, they call at him from a distance. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. That's what they call out for. They don't come near and kneel at his feet. And so this man's actions are shocking and dangerous. But verse 2 tells us he's full of faith. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. He acknowledges that Jesus has the power and he pleads for him to do something about his condition. He probably had known too well the fact that he encountered so many people in his lifetime who had the power to be able to help him in some way but chose not to. They just chose to walk away because it's a lot easier to walk away from someone who's got a problem like leprosy than to try and figure out what could you possibly do to help him. And this leper says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. What happens next is stunning. Verse 3, the text says, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Don't miss that. You can almost hear in your mind the gasp of the crowd as he puts his hand out. They're like, He puts out his hands and he touched him. Look, you don't touch lepers. You avoid them, you banish them, you pray you'll never be like them, they're cursed by God. You don't reach out and grab a hold of them. That is dangerous. It's foolish. What are you, you're going to get leprosy if you do that. You don't touch lepers. In fact, it, it may be that this man, if we just think a little bit, maybe let's say he had leprosy for 10 years, he probably hasn't been touched by anybody in 10 years. And Jesus reaches out and he touches the man and he says to him, I will be clean. And instantly his leprosy is healed. Jesus then instructs him to go quietly, to follow the Old Testament law, but to keep the miracle to himself. Jesus does not want more attraction than what he already has. The remarkable thing here is that Jesus doesn't need to touch him. He can just say, be healed, and he would be. But no, Jesus does something more. He chooses to touch him. But just think of that. He chooses to touch him. This was a man who was healed by the personal touch of Jesus. And instantly he was moved from outside the gate to inside the reality of what it means to be a healed and cleaned man. You ever felt marginalized? You know what Marginal, to feel marginalized means that you just feel shame. You feel embarrassed. You feel like, I don't, I just don't even want you to look at me. Just, I just don't, I want to crawl into the corner and just kind of disappear. You ever felt that way? Some of you may have felt that way because of some friends that you're hanging around and how they treated you or 
others because of your past and something you wish you could completely undo. And it's, it's a terrible feeling. I can think of a couple occasions in my lifetime where I felt marginalized when I felt real shame. One of them was related to something that happened with our kids where I felt just like a really, really bad dad. This felt really bad. My, my wife, and by the way, I have her permission in telling you this story. When our boys were about one years old, she was um, changing their diaper. Some of you are like, where is this going, right? So let me explain. They were changing their diaper, and all of a sudden she screamed. And, you know, men, does your wife have a scream when you know there's like a like a funny scream, and then it's like, oh, wow, we got to really run fast scream. And that was this, hey, we got to really run fast scream. And, and I came into the changing area, and she was pointing at his diaper. And I looked in the diaper, and I just saw the a big piece of spaghetti. And I was like, how did that get in? How did that? Why is there a big piece of spaghetti? So I'm looking at that, and all of a sudden, the spaghetti moved. It wasn't a spaghetti. It was a big old roundworm, like that big, in my son's diaper. And at that point, I'm like, what? How did this? What happened? So I flipped the diaper over, you know, put it in a sealed bag, you know, and it's like the hazmat team coming out. You're like, rrr, rrr, like uh, this is great, you know. And we called the. I, I put it in the freezer, right? She's like, why are you put it in the freezer? I'm like, because it'll kill it if it's in the freezer. And we get, so I wanted to bring it to the doctor and say, what is this thing? So we called the doctor, and he's like, sure, yeah, come, we'll take a look at your son and everything else. Well, what had happened was our kids were playing at the beach, and uh, they had been playing in the sand. And you know, you're a parent, you tell your kids, you know, don't don't put sand in your mouth. And this, by the way, will change your beach experience forever from this point forward. And um, so they, so kids, when mom and dad tell you not to put sand in your mouth, here's why. Don't do it because you get worms. Okay, so they put, put, and they got a little parasite in him, I guess. So he went to the doctor, and he looked at the, he, he looked at the worm. He's like, wow, yeah, that's a worm. That sure is. And and I'm feeling like like seriously, loser dad. Like, what kind of dad doesn't protect his kids from parasites in the sand? You know, what kind of dad you know doesn't? And I, and I said to him, I said, Doc, I just I just feel so. And the word was shame. That's what I'm feeling. I'm feeling like I'm unclean. Like I ought to, you know, walk around Target going, my kids have worms. My kids have worms. You know, just like kids have worms. Or you know, it, just, it just feels so like everyone can tell. I know we're on medication. Just relax. You know, I, just, I feel so like just icky inside. And um, and he's trying to be encouraging to me. And his parents were uh, were missionaries. And he said, Oh, Mark, that's, you know, hey, look, don't worry about it. I said, Oh, thanks. He goes, yeah, I've seen bigger ones. And I'm like. <laughs> I said, really? You have? He said, yeah. yeah. In Bangladesh, I've seen much bigger ones. And I was like, oh, you know. Oh. And, and at that moment, I just felt so much shame. I felt unclean. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have my entire life with that kind of feeling. And then to have Jesus come along and reach out his hand and touch me. And say, you are clean. Friends, this is the gospel. It is that Jesus made it incredibly personal. That you, while you were still a sinner, God reached out and grabbed a hold of you and declared you to be something that you are not. He called you forgiven and righteous, even though you were guilty and condemned. So the healing of this leper is not just about this leper. It's about Jesus making the gospel personal. Now notice the second story, and that is the issue of the centurion. Jesus, in this case, took costly action. A Roman centurion was a military leader of approximately 100 soldiers, and apparently this centurion was assigned to the city of Capernaum. So Jesus comes into the city, verse 
5, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, and he said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. So realize that this centurion was a representative of the fact that Rome was occupying the land of Israel. And most Jews longed for the day when Rome would be off the back of Israel. You could get this imperialistic occupying force and let's get them out of the country. And they believed in their heart that the Messiah would bring that reality in. That Rome, with its oppressive taxation and its rough military rule, would finally be out of here. And this centurion was a Gentile. He represented the force of Rome. And he was not the kind of person that would warrant the kind of graciousness that Jesus here communicates. Jesus answers him quickly. He says, I will come and heal him. And once again, we see that Jesus shows himself to be quite radical. Because this centurion is a Gentile. And to go to his house as a Gentile and as a Roman is not a safe suggestion. Which is why the centurion backs Jesus off and says to him in verse 8, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I am too a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go. And he goes. And another, and he come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this and do that. And what he realizes here, this centurion, was that the power of command comes from one who has authority. And therefore he just says to Jesus, just say the word and that will be enough. Well, the whole point of this story has nothing to do with the authority issue that the centurion knows about. But it relates to Jesus' response. Because look what happens in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who follow him, Now, this is really important. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel, I have found such faith. That is not a statement that's going to go over well. It's not. There's a Roman centurion, and Jesus says to his disciples, I'm telling you, I haven't found anybody in Israel with faith like this guy. And then, to make it worse, I mean, Jesus has like zero fear of man. Here's what he says. Verse 11, I tell you the truth. I tell you, many will come from east and west. They'll recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That, that's, those are the three pillars of the Jewish faith. People from all over the world are going to come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom, who's he talking about? Jewish people will be thrown into the utter, outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that the faith of this centurion is so amazing that this is the kind of guy that's going to come and sit at the table and hang out with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while most of the people who think they're religious are going to be out in outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus makes a stunning statement where he commends the faith of this centurion even offering to come to come at once and at the same time he is assaulting the spiritually self-assured. And what does Matthew want us to see? He wants us to see that Jesus is willing to take costly steps and say costly things to reach a man who others do not think is worthy of the kingdom. Matthew wants us to see the costly nature of grace in the life of Jesus. Like the angels look at the church and they cannot believe that God has been so gracious to sinful human beings. The angels saw what God did to people who rebelled against Him last time. The devil 
and all of the hosts that rebelled along with him, they didn't get a second chance. And the angels marvel at the grace of God extended to human beings. Matthew shows us the gospel on Jesus' part took costly action. Here's the last vignette. The final healing is Peter's mother-in-law. Verses 14 and 15 say, When Peter, when Jesus rather entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. So he saw her. Verse 15, And he touched her, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. So the final healing involves probably an old woman who's laying in the house sick with fever, and Jesus sees her. Notice she doesn't make a request. There's no asking for Jesus to heal. Jesus just sees and acts. He sees her need. He touches her hand. The leper came and knelt at the feet of Jesus. The centurion made a faith-filled request, but this healing is entirely different. Jesus acts towards this woman with unsolicited mercy and unsolicited compassion without her even asking for his help. Maybe she was too sick or maybe she was unconscious. But the point is, is that Jesus acted independently of any request. He healed her just because he was kind. Now, if you know your Bible, there's a verse that's just going, bing, 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 in the back of your mind. You know what it is? It's Romans 5, 8. Here it is. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It means that way before you ever loved God, He was loving you. Way before you ever reached out to Him, He was reaching out to you. Way before you ever grabbed a hold of Him, He was grabbing a hold of you. And His unmerited, unsolicited kindness towards you, it is the song of heaven that we are people who've received grace even while we were still sinners. It is not that you were a catch and that's why God got you. It is that you were running away and He had to run and get you. He had to open your eyes. He had to woo your heart. He had to pull you back. He had to shake you up and show you the reality of your condition. When you came to faith in Christ, it's not as though God looked at you and said, Wow, that's great that He's here. You're a sinner. And He reached out to you, not just because of your worth, but mostly because of His glory. And the way in which your redemption will declare to the world and to all of creation the unbelievable, glorious power of God's redemption. So the result of these healings was an outpouring of need from the surrounding area. Verse 16 says that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and he healed all who were sick and What we see here, this is the ministry of Jesus. What's he doing? He's powerfully healing people who are desperate, people who are in in deep need. What's he doing? He's ministering to the marginalized of his culture. It's no accident that Matthew tells us he touched a leper. He offered to go to the house of a centurion. He reached out and healed a woman without her even asking. The message, the picture here that Matthew wants us to see is Jesus aims to bring people back from the brink. He aims to give people hope who would otherwise have none. And implicit in the gospel is this beautiful reality that Jesus made it personal. He became a man. It was incredibly costly. You realize, don't you, that this very moment, Jesus still is flesh and blood human being. He took upon himself the form of a man, a costly 
incarnation, and then he reaches out to people that the whole universe looks at us and says, why in the world would you do that? For those people? Don't you know what they're going to do? He came unto his own, and his own rejected him. He came to his own creatures, and his creatures crucified him. And the whole world looks at this and says, why? Why? And the answer is only because of his grace. The cross is not just about your sin. The cross is about the glory of God's grace. And Jesus, in these healings, shows us this. So he heals those who are marginalized. So, let me give you just four takeaway lessons from the margins. Here's the first. It is this. That the gospel is good news to the marginalized. It's called good news because you are on the margins and you've been brought near. The gospel essentially is the way in which Jesus reaches out to those who were considered far off. It's realizing that the greatest marginalizing force in all of the universe is our sin. And it separates us from God and thereby calls us the enemies of God. So you weren't just like on the fence with God. No, you were an enemy of His. You were his foe. And to be marginalized means that you are on the outer reaches and God, through his son, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, goes and he brings you back from the margin and now declares you to be his son and his daughter. Listen to Ephesians 2, verse 11. Remember that at one time... You Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by those who were circumcised. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. And then here it comes. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace. Can you hear? Messiah, Shalom, He is our peace who made us both one and broke down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Can you hear it? He's taking down the walls of, of, of the courtyards of the temple and tearing it all down and saying, now they're all one in me. And he becomes the great high priest that goes and doesn't just sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats on the, on the, on the altar of the Ark of the Covenant. No, he goes and lays his own life down so that now there is a perfect redemption for any who would come. The gospel is incredibly good news to the marginalized, and every Sunday ought to be a remembrance that you were once a marginalized person. Number two, it is that Jesus takes away our shame by making us new. I'm captured by what it would be to be like this leper who's so filled with shame. And I I have to believe there's some of you here today who... Shame would be the way that you would describe either your present or maybe your past. Regrets that taunt you. You wish you could undo the past, but you can't. And what you need to know is that Jesus was a magnet for shame-filled people. 
You might have this fear of, man, what if everyone knew what I was really like? And the answer is Jesus does. And he still reaches out and touches you and brings you back from the brink. That the ministry of Jesus was to destroy the basis of shame. Because remember where shame began? Shame was fig leaves as Adam and Eve covered themselves. They didn't know they were naked. There was no shame prior to sin. And sin brings shame. And Jesus conquers shame not by changing the past. No, he conquers shame by declaring a new identity over you. He says, Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He declares over shame-filled people, you no longer are condemned. So you might be one of those folks, your heart is so filled with the shame of your past, and you wonder, how in the world could God ever, ever forgive me for what I have done? And the answer is, that's what Jesus does. He makes you new. He doesn't change your past. He just creates a beautiful new future. Third, the gospel is validated by care and love. It's amazing to me that Jesus didn't just preach to people. He healed them. And I don't want to diminish the value of Jesus' words at all, his message, and his words were the basis of his ministry, but it seems to me that there's something important that we can't miss, that Jesus was not only about a message, he was about a message that was birthed into real care and real love for people. Jesus healed hurting people. So that it seems to me that ministry only, or rather message only ministry, is not real ministry. And maybe even not fully gospel ministry. In other words, if you really know what the gospel is, then love for others will emanate from your life. You won't just be concerned that people know the right truth. You will know and understand that caring and loving for them goes along with knowing the right gospel. I mean, what would you think of Jesus if when he met this leper, he just gave him a new curriculum? Or a word of encouragement or some axiom to live by. Here, brother, why don't you read this book on your leprosy? That'll help you. He needs to be healed. He needs to be healed. This is what James says. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, or here's how we say it, I'll pray for you. Without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So the gospel is validated by love and care. Here's the final thing. And this is my call to you. Is I want you to look around you and find the people who are marginalized. The lesson from this story has to be that we are called to minister like Jesus to the marginalized of our city, of our church, of the world. Jesus was constantly ministering to the religious crowd, but he's also continually reaching out to the hurting, the despised, the outcast, the people who had no hope. Jesus was known as a friend of whom? Friend of sinners. He wasn't a friend of the Pharisees. They hated him. He he ticked them off all the time. Disciples said to him frequently, don't you know you made them mad? And Jesus says, who cares about them? They're the blind leading the blind. Jesus was not a friend of the Pharisees. He was a friend of sinners. And the call is, is that we as a church have to always be a place that looks for the marginalized people. 
We have to do that on Sundays to come to church, not just like, what am I going to get? But what and who and how can I reach out to hurting people? There are hurting people in this room that this large room is the loneliest place in the world because they carry a million pound weight on their shoulders. They're here. Find them and wrap your arms around them. There are people in our city who are marginalized, who need the gospel, but they need that gospel on a platform that we really care. And there are people around the world who are unreached today. And they're unreached for a reason. And we have to be a part of the story of reaching them. They are marginalized. The question is, how can we help them? You see, a leper, a centurion, and a woman all show us that the gospel was meant to make shame-filled, ostracized, embarrassed people marginalized no more. It is that Jesus aims to take those who are afar off and bring them near so that the cry of heaven at the feet of Jesus will be, we were all sinners until we met the Lamb of God and now we are marginalized no more. That's the confession of the gospel. That's the way Jesus lived. And that's what it means, friends, to follow him, to declare with glorious wonderful, heartfelt desire. We are marginalized no more. And come, let me introduce you to a Savior who can give you hope and peace like you've never known it. That's the gospel. And that's what Matthew wants us to see. Lord, I pray that um, you would pour your grace out on people today whose hearts are filled with shame And I pray that you would help them to feel the weight of the declaration over those who know Jesus, that there's now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would give us discernment to know what is our part in following you and how it means for us to reach out to those who are marginalized in our own culture, in our own city, and around the world. Oh God, help us not to be content with just consuming another Lord's Day. But help us to really have eyes to see so that we can be the kind of people who really are the followers of you. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.